The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor, and we have a great show for you this week. Here is how it's going to go. First, you are going to hear my interview with Alexei Sorokin. He's from the Kiev Independent. We're going to talk about all the latest news from the ground in Ukraine. Um, he is just an incredibly impressive human being and journalist, and it was a really powerful interview, uh, as I think you'll hear in a second. Uh, then I'm going to walk you through some of the other big headlines from Ukraine and from around the world this week. And then finally, you guys will hear Ben's interview with London Mayor Sadiq Khan, which he recorded last week in London in person. So Ben is off today. He's taking a little vacation with the family, but you will still hear his dulcet sounds uh, at the end of the episode. So please do not despair. I am a little sad that of all the weeks Ben decides to take a break because he is a workaholic, it's the week we get more detail about just how corrupt uh, and immoral and depraved Jared Kushner is and how thoroughly he sold his soul to the Saudi government for a multi-billion dollar kickback from his bone saw buddy, Mohammed bin Salman. But I'll raise that with Ben next week. You'll get to hear from him in this one. I get to say my piece on Pod Save America. I suspect we'll also talk about the Trump administration's failure to record all the gifts they got from foreign officials. What a shock that those uh, scrupulous, well-meaning officials over there on Team Trump, State Department, DOD, White House, wherever else they were, just never wrote down all the free shit they got. Hmm. Very, very above board. Um, before we get to my interview, check out the latest episode of Offline. Uh, this week, John talks with the co-founder and former CEO of Twitter, Ev Williams. Let's talk about the Twitter early years, the newest on-again, off-again board member, Elon Musk, Donald Trump. Check out Offline. Uh, it drops every Sunday. It's where you get your podcasts. Great, great, great show. Lots of awesome episodes. Uh, also, uh, you guys probably remember Jason Rezaian. Uh, He is a Washington Post columnist, uh, and he's the host of 544 Days, an amazing podcast we released, Jesus, a year ago, this year? I don't know. Who knows time anymore? It's about the 544 days Jason was wrongly imprisoned in an Iranian prison. Uh, it was nominated for a Webby Award for Best Limited Series. You can vote online now for Jason's show, 544 Days, for This Land Season 2, uh, for lots of other crooked stuff. If you go to vote.webbyawards.com, uh, vote.webbyawards.com, vote for Jason, vote for 544 Days, vote for This Land Season 2, and you can listen to the entire season of 544 Days for free, by the way, uh, only on Spotify. So... Uh, without any further ado, let's get to our interview. My guest today is the political editor and COO of the Kiev Independent, Alexei Sorokin. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Alexei, yesterday there were reports uh, that Russian troops may have used chemical weapons uh, in Mariupol. 
Um, U.S. officials say that they haven't been able to confirm these reports. I saw the Pentagon say that and Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, today. I know the city has been under siege for weeks. It's hard to get information in and out, or at least to get journalists in and out. Um, and it can take some time to confirm chemical weapons use under any circumstances. But can you help us understand what's been alleged or reported so far? Yes, Ukraine also doesn't confirm chemical weapon use. Uh, right now, the deputy defense minister says that it might have been uh, phosphorus uh, munition. So obviously, we don't know what was used. But according to those on the ground, they say that many have eye rash, have a hard time breathing, and all the symptoms that some kind of chemical was used. We still don't know what it was. And I, th- I think that it's going to be impossible to prove this case. Yeah. And obviously the details matter a lot here because, you know, we saw in Syria that, you know, something like a sarin gas or a VX gas uh, may be used. It took a while to confirm that, but also, you know, chemicals like chlorine gas can be highly toxic. They can terrorize and kill civilians, but they're not listed as a chemical weapon or banned under the chemical weapons convention. I think the same is true for white phosphorus, if that's what they're saying was used here. That's an incendiary weapon, meaning it it's often used to create smoke or to light up an area, but if it gets on you, it can literally burn through your skin and burn through the bone. It's, it's, it's a horrific, horrific weapon. But again, not viewed as a chemical weapon by the OPCW. So yeah, and technically it's not banned. So Russia can point to this that it's not a chemical weapon use on their part. Right. Um, I saw, and I know you, you saw this as well, some journalists were cautioning that the source of these uh, reports about potential chemical weapons use were from the Azov Battalion. Therefore, we need to treat them with skepticism, uh, given who the Azov Battalion are. I see that a lot over here. Critics of Western support for Ukraine point to the Azov Battalion and the you know the fact that there are some right-wing nationalists and maybe even neo-Nazis within the organization. Uh, as a as a way to sort of tarnish Western support for the war effort, can you understand us? Help us understand the broader context of like who the Azov Battalion are and how they fit into the Ukrainian defense and, and maybe political infrastructure. Uh, sure. Well, the first thing to point out here is that uh, using chemical weapons on people should be banned, and no matter who reports that. Uh, yeah. Concerning Azov Battalion. Uh, the trick here is that the Azov Battalion that was created in 2014, when Russia first invaded Ukraine and launched its invasion of Donbass, and the Azov Battalion right now, it's completely two different structures. Back then, uh, the battalion was created by Kharkiv Ultras, uh, basically football hooligans, obviously many of whom were far-right, some of them were neo-Nazis, and that's uh, the source of uh, information that many people in the West get. Basically, they saw that there were neo-Nazis in Azov in 2014. They carry it to 2022, and they say that the battalion is Nazi. Uh, what happened later? In 2015, Ukraine basically decided that those volunteer battalions should be incorporated into the interior ministry, into the National Guard, and obviously... It checked everyone who was part of this group. Uh, Those who uh, had far-right views were uh, cast aside. And now the Azov uh, regiment is basically uh, a department of the National Guard. 
So it still has the same insignia. It still has the same history, but I would say that less than 5% of those who were part of this battalion in 2014 are still part of the battalion now. Um, Got it. Also, we know that the Russian propaganda used this case to frame Ukrainian volunteers as neo-Nazis. This is uh, obviously not true. If we look at, for example, Ukrainian parliamentary uh, elections in 2019, then far-right parties uh, in total uh, received uh, 2%. Uh, a bit mm-hmm. over 2%. Obviously, they didn't make it into parliament. And even Azov's leader, uh, Bilecki, who was a lawmaker in 2014, he uh, didn't run. And the party he represented didn't run in the parliamentary elections. If we look, for example, uh, in Germany, there's AFD, which has over 10%. Um, Marine Le Pen, is now yeah, in the, say France. Yeah, in France, she's in the runoff in the presidential elections. Uh, we also know that there's a lot of problems with far-right groups in the States as well. So pointing to yeah. one group, which is pretty marginal, and saying that, uh, A, Ukrainians are neo-Nazis, and two, that uh, the report of uh chemical weapons being used is not true i think it's it's it should be uh cast aside this notion yeah that that's incredibly helpful context um you know stepping back a little bit i mean there are new reports uh, almost every day about civilian casualties about war crimes by russian forces you know there's the occupation of bucha the the shelling of a railway station full of civilians and kids over the weekend the mayor of Mariupol says 10,000 civilians have been killed. Uh, Cherniev was under siege for weeks. I, I know that you personally, your team, you've been visiting some of these places. I mean, what has that experience been like for you and wh- what have you seen? I think it's first uh, reaction you get is shock. Uh, you you see this in movies about the Second World War. When there's like villages completely destroyed, when where people are executed. Uh, women are raped, children are raped. You hear this and you think, okay, this this can't be true. This this sounds, this is so horrific that you think that maybe we're exaggerating. Maybe this reports are not true. And then you go to the site, then you see this, then you see, uh, for example, the town of Borodyanka, 40 kilometers northwest of Kiev, completely destroyed. All high-rise buildings were bombed with airstrikes. There's uh, under one building, they found in the first day of rescue operations, they found 26 bodies. Uh, in the town of Chernigiv, which we visited, under one building, they found 47 bodies. And that's one building. And, yeah. and, and when you walk those streets, destroyed streets, uh, for example, in Bucha, when you walk the streets, you see people lying. You see people lying there for weeks. Uh, there's a certain smell, there's a certain picture of kids, women, lacking body parts. Uh, there's uh, tanks burned, there's uh, buildings destroyed. And, and when, you, when you see this with your own eyes, you feel, you feel like some, something died inside. Um, and especially when we're talking about Kiev suburbs, I'm from Kiev. I was born in Kiev. I lived nearly all my life in Kiev. 
Uh, I have friends who lived in Bucha, who lived in Irpin. Those are uh, pretty well-established suburbs. Uh, for example, in Irpin and Bucha, uh, a lot of uh, young uh, Ukrainians were buying houses or had a mortgage. And when you hear your friends uh, having their apartments destroyed, the friends of your friends being killed, their parents being killed, uh, you you think that well, your life won't be the same. This is this is something yeah. that changes your life. Yeah, I, I mean the other the, the other horrifying report I saw over the weekend, I think, was some Ukrainian officials were saying that more than a hundred thousand children have been forcibly deported, kidnapped would be a better word to to Russia by the Russian government. They they say that Russia may be changing its laws to fast track the adoption of Ukrainian children. That is obviously one of the most evil things I've ever heard. I think that is clearly a genocidal um, behavior. Do, do you know where these estimates are coming from? Are, are these children who primarily live in, in eastern Ukraine? Uh, yes. What happens is that um, in Donbass and in cities encircled in Russia, uh, Russia basically uh, forces people to uh, flee to Russia. It says that, okay, we're going to allow a humanitarian corridor, but only to Russia, right? And if you are a family uh, with a small child and you have an option either to uh, sit in a basement in Mariupol and die of starvation, of dehydration, or take your chances and try to flee even to Russia, obviously you will take that chance. And uh, we see that in the Kharkiv uh, region, in Donetsk region, in Luhansk region, well, where Russia, for the sake of its own propaganda, to show itself as the liberators, as the saviors of the people, it forces people to flee to Russia. And then, obviously, people have problems. Uh, little kids are separated from their parents. Uh, parents are interrogated, especially if it's men from 18 to 60. There are uh, some reports, this is unconfirmed reports, but some report that uh, men were uh, shipped to Siberia to basically live there uh, so that they can't return to Ukraine and pick up arms. Um, the, the best account here is Lyudmila Denisova, who's the ombudsman of, uh, of Ukraine. She's a parliamentary representative for the human rights. She, uh, every day, she publishes reports about uh, systematic uh, human rights violations and it's hard to read that. Um, yeah. After Bucha, there were multiple cases of rape, uh, of children being raped. Um, there is there is also, I think it was yesterday in her interview to BBC, she said that twenty five around 25 women were kept in a basement in Bucha and systematically raped by Russians. And uh, you, re you read this every day. You start your morning by reading this news that children are kidnapped by Russia. Children are raped. Uh, men are shot. You, you read this the whole day. Then you uh, write a story. Then you edit a story. Then you go to bed and you check the news. Uh, and you see, for example, um, defenders of Mariupol uh, pleading for help and saying that Russia uses chemical weapons. And, and then you just sit there and you, you think that, how am I still sane? How am I still able to process this and to work and to continue to provide information if for the past 48 days, I'm hearing just uh, 
war crime after war crime and one uh, powerful neighbor completely trying to completely annihilate me, my family and the people I love. Yeah, it, it, it's horrific. And, and, you know, I mean, not that this is any consolation, but I mean, one of the things that has just been like staggering to me and to, to Ben, my, my uh, co-host here, is the ability for people like you, I mean, Ukrainian journalists, to continue doing their jobs and reporting and, and keeping the world uh, abreast of what's happening and in, in doing so in such a factual and rigorous way. I mean, it's, um, it, it, it's horrifying, but pretty extraordinary work. So you deserve credit for that. Um, you know, you mentioned the pullback from Ukraine that the Russian forces made a couple weeks ago that allowed, you know, access into places like Bucha. There's speculation that Russia might be refocusing their military efforts on the Donbass solely and, and are looking for some sort of success by May 9th, which is a major holiday in Russia where they celebrate their victory over the Nazis in World War II uh, before, I guess, deciding to emulate them in uh, in 2022. H- have those forces been brought into the fight yet? And, and if not, I mean, is there a sense of when that might happen? Uh, yes. Uh, according to uh, both Ukrainian and Russian officials, uh, those troops are moved. Uh, for example, those that were stationed near Kiev are moved through Belarus, through Russia, to Lugansk region. Those that were stationed near Chernihiv and Sumer are moved also through uh, the neighboring Russian regions to Lugansk and Donetsk. Um, we expect this, uh, as it's now called, battle for Donbass to begin maybe early next week because Russia has logistics problems. Um, It's hard for them to basically uh, form battalions out of those scarce uh, resources that were left near Kiev. Uh, Ukraine uh, has here uh, a priority in shipping arms also to Donetsk, to to the Donetsk region, to Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, Ukraine can do it faster. Ukraine is using railways, uh, which proven to be very effective of, uh, for example, moving people out of war zones. They moved over several million people to the West. So um, everybody expects this battle to, to start any day now, uh, probably closer to next week. And also, this is important to point out that um, now both Ukraine and Russia have paused any sorts of peace talks because both mm-hmm. countries are banking on this uh, battle. Uh, Russia on the offensive, Ukraine on the defensive. Uh, here Russia has an advantage, I would say, uh, because um, when they tried the so-called uh, Blitzkrieg, uh, this fast operation to conquer Ukraine in three days, they overestimated their resources and underestimated Ukrainian defenses. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, they understand that they're against a very tough opponent. And uh, now they will try to um, pack as many troops in one in one region to have uh, basically uh, five to one, maybe seven to one in terms of troops, tanks, uh, missiles, and so on. And here Ukraine will have a problem. Here Ukraine, Ukrainian uh, mobile defenses, when they can hit supply lines, hit several tanks, and then move back. 
here it won't work because it's a very narrow strip here. Uh, you can't basically move out of Severodonetsk or Kramatorsk or Mariupol. So um, I think this will be a very, very hard battle for Ukraine to win. And that's why President Zelensky uh, has increased his um, plea to Western leaders for them to provide heavy weapons because he, he said it quite frankly today that without heavy weapons, we can't break the siege in Mariupol and basically probably we can't win the battle in Donbass. Yeah, it seems like the Russians have lots of stuff, tanks, armored vehicles, missiles, etc. But um, they might be short on infantry and, and troops with, you know, any kind of morale left, whereas Ukraine has some of the you know bravest fighters I think we've seen in a long time, but maybe not enough material. I mean, t- to your point about Zelensky's plea for more stuff, weapons, et cetera, heavy weapons, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was in Kiev recently. I know he had talks with President Zelensky. He sort of walked around the city greeting people, wondering how that visit was received and whether that visit has been uh, matched with sort of a, a commensurate um, offer of more of the weapons you need. Well, obviously, it was a photo op, right? Um, we know that Boris Johnson likes um, shiny things. He likes to <laughs> a- appear uh, as the leader of the free world, as the Chur- mm-hmm. Churchill of our time. Uh, that's one thing. The second is that he promised Ukraine more weapons. He promised Ukraine uh, anti-tank weapons. He promised Ukraine um, some defensive weapons against uh Russian naval uh, capabilities. Uh, That's what we're hoping for right now. Obviously, the number one priority for Ukraine is tanks and air defense. That's where we uh, basically, obviously, are losing in comparison to Russia. Uh, The S-300s that we were asking, well, Slovakia uh, was the first country to finally ship uh, one S-300 battery, we, we need more. Uh, the S-300 is a Soviet-made uh, air defense system, which Ukrainians can operate, meaning that mm-hmm. we can just ship it to the east and it's already operational. So uh, here, I think it's not um, what Boris Johnson can do. It's something that the U.S. can do, basically um, swap uh the Soviet-made weapons that many Eastern European countries, part of the Warsaw Pact, have for new um, American... Patriot. uh, Yeah, Yeah. for Patriot, basically, air defenses. And we're hoping that the U.S. will do it, but after U.S. basically uh, fumbled uh, the case of MiG-29s saying that U.S. is not going to help transfer those planes, those jets to Ukraine. Um, I think that now Ukraine is hoping more on the U.K. uh, and Eastern European countries such as Poland and the Baltic states. And it sounds like, I mean, the Germans initially said they were going to do a lot of things for Ukraine, but it seems like maybe uh, the, the new chancellor is dragging his feet on cutting off Russian imports of oil and gas and maybe dragging his feet as well on the delivery of armored uh, uh, personnel carriers. Is that right? Yeah. Um, th- there was this shocking situation where basically Germany decided to uh, decommission 100 
uh, APCs instead of tr transferring them to Ukraine. So they just decided to destroy a hundred uh, military vehicles rather than providing them to Ukraine. Obviously, they were old. Obviously, uh, Ukrainians don't know how to handle them, and you have to train Ukrainians. But just th that was that was a shock. And uh, uh, Frank Walter Steinmeier, uh, the president of Germany basically uh, said today that he was will willing to uh, repeat uh, Johnson's photo op and go to Kiev, but Zelensky said no. Uh, and that's, uh, Uk that's Ukraine's stance here, that we believe that Germany is doing not enough. We believe that Germany is partially responsible to the situation that's happening. First, because they were appeasing Russia for, for years. Um, and second, because they are now choosing their uh, comfort for Ukrainian lives. Because every bullet that Russia fires in Ukraine is sponsored by uh, European countries that buy oil and gas. Russian oil and gas imports, uh, exports of Russia and imports of the European Union uh, account for 40% of Russia's budget. 40. That's if if tomorrow uh, the European Union says, okay, we're done, we're cutting off uh, Russian oil and gas uh, and coal, uh, the war will end within a month. Yeah. Yeah. So last question for you. And thank you again for giving me so much time. I mean, I know people in the Biden administration listen to this, State Department, the Pentagon, whatever. What do you want them to hear from you and, and about what Ukrainians need and, you know, about what the expectation is for the U.S. for NATO to to deliver in these crucial um, weeks ahead in this you know refocus fight in the Donbass. I think it's important for Western leaders to understand that it's not a war between uh, the small country Ukraine against Russia. This is a war between the free world and a dictatorship. And Ukrainian survival, the survival of the Ukrainian nation, the Ukrainian state, is in the interest of the U.S., of Germany, of France, and if it causes uh, a spike in gas prices or uh, a fall, I don't know, in employment of uh, a couple of percent, that's still worth taking than seeing Ukrainians die, than seeing Ukrainians being massacred, because this will be in history books. This will be the same history books that talk about the Second World War, the First World War, and you have to choose on which side of history you are. And helping Ukraine survive, this will obviously be go down in history as a major win for democracy in the free world. Alexi, thank you so much for talking with us. And um, thanks for all the great work that Kiev Independent is doing. Um, everyone should follow you on Twitter. I don't know. Can they help you out? Can they subscribe? What can people do to help you guys are working so fucking hard? I think it's, uh, it's better to donate to Ukrainian uh, organizations such as Come Back Alive and some humanitarian organizations that help, uh, for example, the displaced uh, refugees. I think that will be much appreciated in Ukraine. Okay, we'll do that too. Thank you again uh, and, uh, and have a great day. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. All right, I'm going to talk through a few more things uh, that I saw in the news about Ukraine that didn't come up in the interview today, and then a couple other issues from around the world that I just think are worth noting. So the first thing I saw from Washington was the Biden administration is reportedly debating how much they are legally allowed to support a criminal investigation of Russian war crimes in Ukraine uh, by the International Criminal Court. This issue is a little complicated for the United States and for President Biden because the U.S. isn't party to the treaty that created the International Criminal Court. The U.S. military mostly uh, vigorously opposes the U.S. being a part of the criminal court because they don't want U.S. troops prosecuted at The Hague. So we're going to watch how this one plays out. Obviously, there's a lot of momentum to call President Putin a war criminal, to prosecute him and other Russian officials for war crimes. I suspect that the United States will be able to find ways to get evidence of Russian war crimes to these prosecutors without joining the treaty. But I am far from an expert here. We need you, Amal Clooney. Please come on the show. Walk us through this one. Um, We've also talked in past episodes about how there's a debate over whether NATO expansion was a good idea, whether it went too far. The question is basically, did NATO unnecessarily antagonize Russian leaders, including Putin, by expanding further and further eastward and admitting countries closer and closer to Russia's border? Regardless of what you think about that debate, uh, and if you really want to dig into it, you should go back and listen to my interview with Peter Beinart from several months ago. Um, It now seems pretty clear that Putin's decision to invade Ukraine, whether or not it was the result of, you know, NATO encroachment, will lead to more NATO expansion, not less. Uh, There are reports that both Sweden and Finland are currently debating whether to join. uh, And there's polling in both countries that show support for joining NATO doubled in both countries. Funny how that happens when you fucking invade your neighbor. Um, People suddenly want protection. So Finland will probably decide uh, what to do in a few weeks. Sweden is more likely to decide, I think, during the summer. It might be an issue in their parliamentary elections in September So great work there, Vladimir Putin, more strategic genius from uh, the uh, the man over in Russia. Um, Finally, the investigative journalist organization Bellingcat reported that there has been a massive Stalinist-like purge of Russian intelligence officials. They reported that nearly 150 FSB agents have been fired or moved and that the head of the department responsible for Ukraine was sent to prison. There's been a lot of speculation lately, a lot of experts arguing that Putin's isolation, his ever-shrinking circle of advisors and and friends, and his tendency to punish people who bring in bad news is 
part of why this military campaign has gone so badly to date uh, and why all the Russian assumptions about Ukraine have been wrong. Uh, Putin seemed to think that he could just gallop into Kiev, that Zelensky would flee, that the Ukrainian military would roll over. The exact opposite happened. Um, so we shall see what happens with all these, um, you know, FSB agents and everybody else. You know, good luck to you, evil monsters. Uh, sorry, you work in a system where the messenger sometimes literally gets shot. And uh, speaking of which, best of luck to the new Russian commander of the war effort who was named over the weekend. Um, in other news from around the world, French voters went to the polls on Sunday for the first round of a two-part presidential election. Uh, as expected, the runoff on April 24th will pit President Emmanuel Macron against right-wing zealot Marine Le Pen. In the first round, Macron got 27.8% of the vote. Le Pen got 23.2% of the vote. According to polling, Macron is the slight favorite going into the runoff, uh, but I still think we should all be a little bit nervous uh, about the way his lead shrank over the past few weeks and what the totality of these results tell us. So before I get to that, um, a little background. So Marine Le Pen and her party have a long history of anti-immigrant rhetoric, anti-immigrant policies. Uh, there's been some vile anti-Semitism. She's a well-documented fan of Vladimir Putin. So if she's elected, it is bad news for a lot of reasons, and you can probably kiss uh, French support for Ukraine goodbye. Le Pen barely beat out a leftist candidate named Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Uh, he took third place with 22% of the vote. Apologies for that accent. Uh, Mélenchon focused a lot of his campaign on populist economic issues like lowering the retirement age and creating uh, a minimum wage. But you know it's notable that he is also far more hostile than Macron to EU rules, and he's been a, a longtime critic of NATO. So, you know, what I think these results tell us, the early results at least, is that racism and, and Islamophobia, you know, dressed up in campaign rhetoric as a debate about language and culture has resonated with a lot of French voters. Um, so are messages that are critical of NATO, critical of the EU, critical of internationalism generally. Um, although it's worth noting that this time Le Pen did not run on exiting the EU. That previously had been a plank in her platform when she's run in the past. There was no Frexit pledge this time. But we can also see that populist economic policies are resonating as people everywhere deal with inflation and rising gas prices. And I think a global economy that is clearly just still a mess after the pandemic. So the question now becomes, can Emmanuel Macron get his shit together? Will he start campaigning hard? Can he attract enough votes from the left, or has he you know, disappointed them? And will those voters stay home or give Le Pen a shot? Um, Mélenchon, the, the leftist socialist candidate, told his supporters that he doesn't like either candidates. He doesn't like Le Pen, he doesn't like uh, Macron, but he said his voters can't let one vote go to Marine Le Pen in the second round. Notably, he did not say vote for Emmanuel Macron. He said, don't let one vote go to Marine Le Pen. So there's a question there of whether he's sort of signaling stay home. Um, this is Le Pen's third run. Uh, last time, 2017, she went head to head in a runoff with Macron. He, he beat her handily. One reason for that was she did a terrible job in their debate. Um, and that really hurt her. We'll see if she's improved. It's worth, again, remembering that Marine Le Pen's party got an $11 million loan from a Russian bank in 2014 that has ties to the Kremlin. That could be a far more salient issue now. She has had to try and hide her Putin love. In the past few months, there were a bunch of flyers that had her and Putin on them that uh, they had to tear up or put away. 
She now says she supports sanctions on Russia, but not energy sanctions on Russia because she doesn't want to hurt French consumers. Um, obviously, sanctions on Russia that don't include energy are not particularly strong, um, but it'll be interesting to see if that kind of attempt at splitting the difference flies uh, and if Macron is tacked too far to the right. You know, the last step in this process is going to be um, that a few weeks after the presidential election, there will be parliamentary elections. So whoever wins, but especially Le Pen, will not just have to win that election, but then find a way to form a government. So we'll watch that one very closely. Um, the other issue we previewed last week that came to a head this week is Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan was finally ousted from his job on Sunday after losing a no-confidence vote in parliament. Khan had tried to block that no-confidence vote from happening by dissolving parliament before they could take the vote, but Pakistan's Supreme Court ruled that that move violated the constitution and allowed the vote of no-confidence to proceed, and Khan got the boot and is now the first Pakistani prime minister to be removed by a no-confidence vote in history. Um, Parliament then named opposition leader Shabazz Sharif to be the interim prime minister. That happened on Monday. If his name sounds familiar, it's because Sharif is the younger brother of former prime minister Nawaz Sharif, who last got thrown out of office over corruption allegations back in 2017. The the younger Sharif now inherits a brutally difficult political environment with you know inflation, uh, a powerful military that he too has to appease, and a pissed off former prime minister named Imran Khan who is likely to run again, who's likely to whip up his supporters, uh, and then elections uh, that are likely later this year. So, you know, in the past, Sharif has been accused of ordering extrajudicial killings and charged with corruption. So not a great outcome, I think, although maybe he'll provide some stability. Uh, one of the last things I want to cover is just this, this COVID lockdown in Shanghai, China. Um, this isn't getting that much attention, I think, because, you know, so much of the international news focus is on Ukraine. But Again, this is the third largest city in the world. Uh, I think it's like 25, 26 million people. And parts of the city have been locked down for two weeks. And it's not like lockdown, like we were locked down, like uh, you can walk the dog, uh, you know, Postmates is still delivering. Like in some cases, people were literally locked into their homes or apartment buildings, like bolted from the outside. And today, April 12th, when we're recording, some residents were finally allowed out of their homes but that really only came after videos and news reports emerged of people who were you know, screaming that they were literally starving. Uh, and there was a video of people trying to break into a supermarket. Um, others had run out of medicine. I mean, residents, like they can't get food delivered because all the delivery people are locked down as well. And authorities have responded with you know, brutality, imprisoning residents, beating them, people who test positive, uh, have been forced into crowded, unsafe quarantine facilities. And, you know, it doesn't seem like this this draconian effort is even working uh, and really will lead everyone to question, I think, China's COVID zero policy and whether it's sustainable at all. The last thing I wanted to mention to you all before we go into Ben's interview uh, with London Mayor Sadiq Khan is some other news out of the UK. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was fined by police for breaking coronavirus laws by attending a uh, COVID party during lockdown that his own government had ordered. Uh, I'm curious how they decided which party exactly to fine him for because there were so many, but apparently what got him this fine was his birthday party at 10 Downing Street. On Tuesday, Johnson said he had paid the fine. Uh, we don't know how much it was. He again apologized, but he refused to step down. London police say they will issue fines for at least 50 violations, uh, including Johnson, his wife, and the chancellor of the exchequer. 
Um, you know, Boris seems to have been banking on the fact that Ukraine has distracted everyone from his partying ways. Uh, we shall see, um, you know, when parliament comes back into session, you know, you have to think that they might raise this several times. They might raise the fact that it seems pretty clear that Boris lied to parliament, lied to the British people about what was happening, and uh, he could still be in some trouble. But really, it's up to members of his own party to decide to throw him overboard to do a vote of no confidence. But we'll see if we get there. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with London Mayor Sadiq Khan. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Okay, I'm very pleased to be joined by the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Welcome to London, Ben. It's good to see you in London face-to-face rather than virtually or Zoom or on the phone. Exactly. It's a, it's a bit different and these are, uh, people can see it, but we're in your fabulous new City Hall digs. Um, so congratulations on that. Um, and I wanted to start, um, I noticed the Ukrainian flag uh, hanging outside City Hall as I walked in. Um, you know, I think people look to London as kind of a barometer of public opinion globally, such a global city. I've seen you out at pretty significant demonstrations. How do you just describe, for starters, the mood here? What is the sense of, of concern about the war, the sense of solidarity with the Ukrainians? What are, what are you doing um, to, to try to demonstrate that? Well, uh, London is the most diverse city in the world. We have more than 300 different uh, languages spoken, people from all over the globe who've made London their home. So it is a microcosm of uh, world public opinion. And uh, the, the two things about Londoners uh, uh, in general terms is one is uh, uh, unequivocal condemnation of Putin's barbaric aggression, uh, almost uh, unanimity there in that view. And secondly, our solidarity with uh, Ukrainians. It's been heartbreaking to see those images from you know, Bucha or Mari- Maripol or Kirchhoff or on the outskirts of Kiev to see what they're going through. Uh, and when you look at the numbers and speak to Ukrainians in London, and those not able to come here, it's heartbreaking. And, and there is a frustration uh, when I speak to Londoners about the inability of the West to either stand up to Putin in a meaningful way or to provide the you know, proportionate help Ukrainians uh, need. And we've been inspired by both President Zelensky and when we had that big, big tens of thousands joined our, our march in London, we got uh, the mayor of Kiev, the, the former heavyweight champion, yeah. uh, you know, Mayor Klitschkow speaking to us and we're in awe of their strength and their bravery. And also, frankly speaking, we're a bit embarrassed yeah. about the lack of support we're giving them. Well, I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously the sanctions are one of the tools that the West has really applied here. That's put, once again, a kind of magnifying glass on, on London as a, a place where you've had a significant 
population of, of Russian oligarchs, uh, a lot of wealth passes through here. I, as a New Yorker, same thing is true of my hometown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I recognize it's not decisions that, that you've made that led to that. That's been the reality for some time now. But as those sanctions are enforced, I- is there a role for the city? And yeah. what might be the impact on the city's economy of really beginning to go after the kind of kleptocratic uh, network that 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 a Putin has had here in London. Well, look, my view is that these these are the sort of the sort of laissez-faire, um, you know, let the market rip uh, chicks coming home to roost. Look, for years now, London, like other cities around the world, global cities, but London's been seen as a place to store your money, to clean your money. Uh, you can buy homes and leave them empty, or buy businesses. Um, and you know, I'll give you one stat. Uh, an NGO, Transparency International, estimate that there's more than 1.1 billion pounds worth of money from Russian oligarchs tied up in 100 properties in London, right? Mm. We know that the famous football club, Chelsea Football Club, soccer, owned by uh, somebody very close to Putin, Roman Abramovich, and so on and so forth. And so it's been frustrating for Londoners because many Londoners are priced out because of these oligarchs buying property. It's been frustrating for many Brits not being able to purchase businesses because they've been outbid by oligarchs and others. And this, for me, is a chance for a reset. It's an opportunity, and I, and I feel really bad using the word opportunity when talking about Ukraine. Yeah. But an opportunity for us to clean things up, to stop allowing it to be so easy for those oligarchs close to despots like Putin to use London as a place to launder money. And the public are on our side here. The public want us to stand up to Putin and others close to him, but also you'll be aware there are other unsavory characters who are using, you know, global cities yeah. to store their money, uh, to launder their money. And I think what the international community has got to do is work together because what will happen is if London tightens its rules and we, we, we're going to do so, they'll go to another city. They'll go to a New York or yeah. to, to a, you know, a Paris or, or, or LA. And that's why it's really important that the international community works together to understand we don't benefit, you know, we may think, oh, it's great because money's been attracted into our cities, but it's not benefiting the residents of our cities. It's not benefiting our society. And I think this should be a wake-up call for societies around the globe, for democracies around the globe to, you know, change our rules to make it, you know, far more difficult, if not impossible, for our societies to be used by these despots. Yeah. It, it, so is there... There's an opportunity, I guess, in not pricing people out. Is there any opportunity for some of that wealth to, to do, do good? Yeah. So what I said <laughs> um, to the government is a really good point. There's, there's two things. One is we need transparency. Uh, at the very least, there should be a register of all the properties owned by uh, people who are not resident here, who are using shell companies and tax havens. That transparency is important so we can see who owns what, who the beneficial owners are. But secondly, why not you know, have poetic justice in using some of the proceeds of these oligarchs to benefit uh, the Ukrainians, the refugees, those who need support, those who've actually, you know, when you speak to friends in Russia who aren't close to Putin, they will tell you, actually, many of these oligarchs became billionaires overnight because Putin and before him Yeltsin handed to them these privatized yeah. utilities. Uh, and they didn't create this wealth through hard work of themselves, but it's, you know, it's un- 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 unearned wealth. And so there's poetic justice to be done here in relation to using the proceeds, the assets to do good. Yeah. And what about, um, I mean, I there's also obviously been through Brexit, um, you know, some concern that the, the Conservative Party here um, was a bit 
too close for comfort with uh, some of this money. Some of it was flowing to them. I mean, what do you think the political dynamic is here? Is oh, without that, so, so for those for those of your listeners who aren't in the UK, so, so the, 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 the Conservative Party, very, very close to uh, many very, very wealthy Russians, not dissimilar to President Trump yeah. and his close association to uh, certain factions from Russia. And what we n- now have evidence of is many very wealthy Russians funding, donating to the Conservative Party, uh, not just photographs of leading politicians in the Conservative Party, members of the government with wealthy Russian individuals, but also a close association. And you can't disentangle giving donations with government policy that inextricably linked. Why would somebody give money? Yeah. You think, why would you do that? It's because you get something in return. Not just, not just access, but the access leads to certain policies of the government. And, you know, the same concerns I know many Americans had with, you know, uh, President Trump and associations with people close to Putin, if not Putin himself, we have here in the present tense, not the past. And again, yeah. this is an opportunity because the British public um, generally get it right. The, the British public won't stand for this. And you're now seeing a, a, an accelerated attempt from Prime Minister Johnson and his party to try and, you know, distance themselves uh, from uh, Russians, it can't come soon enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's hope so. I wanted to, to pi- you know pivot to a different global issue, um, which is climate change. Uh, I, I you know you can't help but notice as someone who's come to London a lot over the years, just how much has been done in recent years to change transportation here, to change the carbon footprint here. Um, you know, for people who aren't familiar, I mean, can you just describe what what have been your principal um, policies here? To address as a as a big city climate change, and then I want to get into like how that can be or whether that can be replicated in other places. How you've worked with other mayors around the world? Yeah. So look, my, my view when it comes to climate change is there are there are three groups of politicians. You've got those who are, frankly speaking, climate change deniers. You've got those who are climate change delayers. They're delaying taking action. They're, they're talking about policies in twenty forty or twenty fifty or whatever. And then there are those who are climate change doers who are doing stuff now. And I think mayors across the globe are doers. We we do stuff. And since I was elected mayor in twenty sixteen, we did a number of things. The first thing is when you're honest and you speak to people in the global north. Think of the New Yorks, the LAs, the Londons, the Parises, the Madrids, the Barcelonas, and you ask them about climate change. What they say to you, if they're honest, is two things. One is, this is not really an issue for us. It's for the global south. It's for sub-Saharan Africa, islands in the Pacifics. And it's not an issue for now. It's for tomorrow, 2030, 2040, 2050. And what we've done in London is saying, very simple, we have shown the link between climate change and air pollution. Why have we done that? Because we're trying to make this not just an environmental crisis, uh, but a health crisis. Because we know in London, on an average year, there, are, uh, there were tens of thousands of premature deaths. There are children who have permanently stunted lungs because of the stuff they're breathing in. Adults with a whole host of health issues from asthma, cancer, heart disease, lung disease, dementia, directly attributable to uh, the toxicity in the air, which is linked with climate change. And what we did in, in my first year as mayor is educate Londoners about how bad this thing is. Just to, frankly speaking, scare Londoners into giving me permission to take bold action. And working closely with actually with somebody you know very well, Mike Bloomberg and yeah. Bloomberg Philanthropies, we have uh, now the biggest number of air quality monitors of any city in the world, giving real-time information about how good or bad the air is. And that gave me permission from Londoners to have world-leading policies. So we have the world's first 
ultra-low emission zone. What that basically means is it applies the polluter pays principle. You've got a, if you've got a polluting vehicle and you want to come into central London, you've got to pay for that. And what that's led to is fewer non-compliant vehicles, more compliant vehicles, more people walking, cycling, using public transport. We've reduced by half the amount of toxic air in the centre of our city. We've now rolled that out, uh, so we're going to have more of London covered. And uh, uh, in May, I'll be consulting on the, all of London being one big ultra-low emission zone. And the prize is not simply cleaning toxic air. We've reduced carbon emissions in the first two years by an additional 6%. Uh, you know, we've, we're, part, you know we're, we're past um, peak emissions and we're going to reduce further uh, the nitrogen dioxide, the particulate matter, carbon emissions. And at the same time, we're planting record numbers of trees. Uh, we're greening our city. Uh, we have planning policies that require you, if you're building a new home or a building, for it to be uh, zero carbon. And so we've got bold policies. And the great thing is we're taking Londoners with us. Uh, and, you know, people want to see change. Uh, and by educating Londoners... Uh, we're seeing that change in London. Is there, I mean, there's also obviously things like, you know, you have to pay a fee, you know, for congestion if you're, yeah, if you're driving yeah, yeah. a non-electric vehicle. Um, has there been pushback though? I mean, it, you know, some things get more expensive for some people. Um, there's just changes in how you get around. Um, obviously, I, I've just even noticed in, in a way that I find interesting and you know, I can see the benefit. There's so much incentive to take public transportation yeah. now that I don't even think about taking no, a taxi here. Really. But uh, but I'm sure that's it's that's a hardship potentially for, for for taxi drivers. And so, how do you deal with what is the level of of pushback and, and what have you learned about how you deal with that that might be useful for other countries that are trying to to bring a public along with this? Well, the first thing the first thing I've learned as, as a politician is is that the decisions I'm most proud of are the big bold ones. They're the things you're, you're proud of, but you ought to take people with you. We live in a democracy. Uh, there's no point doing bold stuff than losing the next election. The other guy comes in and unravels it all. So you ought to take people with you. So educating Londoners was really important. That's where the air quality monitors help. But you know, an, an amazing stat, uh, almost half of Londoners don't own a car. And actually on a micro level, you see in London what happens on a global level, which is those least responsible facing the biggest consequences of climate change and air pollution. So we've had schemes to assist those who may need their vehicle to transition away. So we've had a scrappage scheme, giving people a grant to get rid of their polluting vehicle. I froze fares for the first five years of me being fares. So the same fare you paid in 2016, you paid in 2021. Many people were concerned about cycling being unsafe. So we increased fivefold the amount of safe cycling, and we had more cycle hire facilities uh, available. We widened pavement. So you're right, made it attractive mm-hmm. to use alternatives to polluting uh, vehicles. And an amazing thing about London is when you speak to most Londoners below the age of 30, they've never bothered to learn how to drive. Why? Because they don't need to. Because yeah. the, the alternatives uh, are so large and so affordable, they do that instead. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. I, I You know, I, uh, I, I can... I can I can sense how, you know, because New York's a little bit behind, but we had Mayor Bloomberg, um, you, you know, you're, 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 you're developing policies here that, you know, you obviously have more resources than other places. But how much do you think these are the types of approaches, um, you know, kind of, kind of really getting rid of traffic congestion, air monitoring, like we talked about, public transport, cycling? Um, 
do you think these are things that can you do you talk to mayors in other parts of the yeah, world so, yeah. you know that 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 are way behind and, and have much further to go um do you think there there are ways that you're creating a playbook here that can be used elsewhere Look, cities are where the action is. Uh, you know, um, I, I, one of the things that, that I'm really pleased and proud of is that I'm now chair of C40. C40 are 97 yeah. mega cities around the world: New York, LA, Phoenix, Seattle. You know, Chicago are members, and you know the the Parises, the Madrids, the Barcelonas, the the Dakas, the the, the Delis, the the Limas, uh, and so forth. And we're working closely. There's a great amount of teamwork, and you know we're very collegiate. We share ideas, we share best practice. So, in, you know, in Barcelona, Ada Kahlo is doing great stuff in relation to reducing street traffic, uh, cars in the centre. Uh, you know, in in Freetown, they're doing great work in planting trees. So, we, we share ideas all the time. You know, we're not competitive; we're, we're we're collaborative in relation to sharing ideas. One of the examples of a good idea that came was actually a, a conversation I had with with Bill de Blasio, uh, the, the former mayor of New York, about five years ago. And I explained to Bill that we were trying to divest our pensions away from fossil fuels. And we decided to work together. And and we now have 18 cities across the globe. And we've divested more than $400 billion away from fossil fuels. And actually, it's not simply for moral reasons and environmental reasons. It makes economic sense. How would it make sense to invest in fossil fuels? And so there are other examples. We're doing joint procurement. Uh, so we've, we... C40 invested a billion pounds from the private sector for cities across South America to buy electric buses. And this is a virtual circle because these electric buses are going to be made somewhere. Uh, these solar panels, these are, you know, wind turbines, electric vehicle charging points, uh, retrofitting our buildings, insulation, uh, and so forth. And so, you know, one of the things we've tried to do across the globe as cities is coming out of this awful pandemic is have green new deals. Yeah. And so in London, we're invested in edu- energy efficiency. We're invested in, uh, you know, future-proof jobs for young people because, you know, we've got to make sure coming out of the pandemic, we don't go back to business as usual. That'd be just awful. Yeah. I was going to ask you well, I'm going to ask you about your, your upcoming trip, um, but just listening to you talk, the, the last question I want to ask you on this subject is, we've talked about kind of democracy in the context of Ukraine in many ways and corruption that, erodes democracy. We've talked about climate change. Those are the two big issues, right? Democracy and climate Spot change. On. And right now it's not looking that great on either. <laughs> you know, it's looking good here in London in a lot of ways, but you know, we just had a we've seen what's happened in Ukraine. We just saw a troubling election in Hungary. We the polls out of France are, you know, the far right's doing a little too well for comfort. You're you're someone I think who's looked to by a lot of small D Democrats and progressives around the world. What what is when you assess the, what you've learned in this job? What is what 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 can be done at the local level? Because part of what I hear in a lot of places is to rebuild democracy or to build climate solutions. You kind of got to build from the bottom up. What is your message to people who kind of look at the enormity of the challenges to democracy and climate about why did not give up? <laughs> you know, um, what 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 hope can you offer us here on, yeah, on look, these, the, these the, meta trends? The, the two responses say is: look, firstly, don't underestimate the impact of Joe Biden becoming president. Made one of the first things he did was to resign the Paris, resign the USA, being part of the Paris Accord. Right, yeah. appointed John Kerry to be his climate change envoy. COP twenty six, as critical as we are, would not have happened with the numbers there had President Biden not been the president. Can you imagine in a parallel universe, yeah. President Trump and COP26? Yeah. Similarly, what we've seen in the last few weeks with President Biden shoulder to shoulder with the European Union, with the UK, NATO's uh, role in this. Imagine in the parallel universe, yeah. President Trump being the guy, uh, being the leader of the free world. So let's not talk down too much 
what we what we what we've achieved. And, and I've got to say this as somebody who loves America and American democracy. Don't un- underestimate as critical as you may be in America of uh, President Biden of the difference. I mean, not just me feeling yeah. lighter as a Muslim having the American president being Biden rather than Trump, but the impact it's had on climate change and multilateralism. On, on my second response is actually, uh, I think cities is where the action is. You know, across the globe, we're seeing greater urbanization. Yeah, more and more people moving to the cities for actually good reasons, uh, and that's not going to change. It's going only going in one direction. Uh, I think the UN estimate uh, over the next few years, more than t- more than two thirds of the world's population will live in cities. Now, for me as a mayor, that's very exciting, uh, but, but we've got to plan for that growth. And there's a former American uh, politician who, who who said, and I'm paraphrasing. If the 19th century is going to be known as the century of uh, empires, 20th century is a century of uh, nation states, 21st century is about cities and mayors. Yeah. And it starts, at, you know, it, you know, somebody you know very well, he was a community organizer. Right? Yeah. That, yeah. That's how you begun. Yeah. And you start small, you're organizing, you start organizing, and then you grow and you grow and you grow and you grow. I remember my, when I ran to be mayor. Um, you know, Nadim is, is in this room, who's one of five people when I began my campaign to be the, the Labour candidate to be mayor and lo and behold you know that that snowball got 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 bigger and we're doing you know bold policies uh, and i think you, you got to be hopeful you yeah. got to be hopeful don't be pessimistic we are the change makers i think the bold big policies are the ones that bring about meaningful change and there is a lot of goodwill and good people out there we just got to mobilize them yeah. and bring them together yeah no you got to organize well i want to end by just asking you i know you have a trip upcoming to the us to 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 new york and in california what what are you what are you uh, setting out to do uh uh, what should we be watching for? Well, this is, this is a very different trip. To my, my last uh, major trip to America was in 2016. It was my first trip in my first term. And I remember that trip joking um, uh, that actually I was there uh, just in case Trump won. Yeah. And I'd be bad from going. It was a joke and people would laugh. And yeah, it was like, yeah. there was no chance, of course, Trump is going to win. And lo and behold, yeah. the rest is history. This is my first major trip since my second term victory last uh, May. And ostensibly, I'm going to bang the drum for London in relation to in New York, We'll be launching a major tourism campaign. Uh, I mean, inviting my American friends to come back to London. Her Majesty's Jubilee is taking place this year, uh, but also we've got great events from three, uh, you know, American football games. We've got Major League Baseball coming back to London. I hope uh, we've got great Lady Gaga's coming to London, but also great Bri- the Stones will be in Hyde Park and yeah. so forth. So come to London. Then we go to San Francisco. We do some really good work with the tech companies there. London is the go-to place for uh, Silicon Valley. We're taking female founders with us who've set up their companies, doing some really good stuff in San Francisco. The mayor of San Francisco was recently in uh, London. And then we're going to LA, big cultural uh, friendship, kinship with uh, LA um, in relation to the work we're doing. You know, London is the, the second biggest, most popular city for filming. Netflix are here new film studios here. You can't go to a restaurant without bumping into a Hollywood actor, yeah, which yeah, is fantastic, I, I was fantastic for, that, for, yeah. for us. And so, you know, we are going there to rebuild the relationships that, that we had. And you, and you can't beat face-to-face stuff, Ben. You know, virtual is fine, Teams is fine, the phone is fine. But, you know, shaking hands, giving hugs, meeting friends and uh, rebuilding that special relationship London has with our friends in the States. Yeah, post-Brexit, post-pandemic, you know, it's It's, it's yeah. crucial. And also, yeah. look, I, you know, small d Democrats, small p progressives, uh, there is nothing better than breaking bread, sharing stories. Yep. And it's, you know, let me be frank, this year, many of us around the globe will be looking at the midterms. 
you know, many of us are looking into what happens in um, looks, looks, looking into what happens in America. American politics matters, but also your role matters. You know, you are now again on the world stage, whether yeah. it's Ukraine, whether it's climate change. Uh, one of the, one of the things I want to do when I go to uh, the US is to say, listen, in, in the kindest possible way, don't judge us by our leader, yeah. you know, <laughs> Boris Johnson. Yeah maybe our prime minister, but he doesn't speak for yeah. know, many people in London. Yeah, well, just like we wouldn't want to be judged by Trump. Well, look, I, I, I really appreciate that. And we're glad you're coming. And one of the things we always say on this podcast and in all my work is that, you know, the, the other sides of these debates are very coordinated. They break a lot of bread together on the far right. Um, they help each other out. Uh, we need to do the same. Um, so that's why it's, it's really great to hear from you today. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking forward to welcoming you to America. Can't wait. Stay safe. Thanks again to Alexi Sorokin for joining the show. Thank you to uh, Mayor Sadiq Khan for joining us. And thank you all to listening all the way to the end, um, even if it's just me solo, talking to myself. Just me and a mic, waving it, producers and everybody. They can't talk back. Their mics aren't on. But anyway, thanks, you guys. Uh, ben will be back next week, and we'll talk to you soon. Positive the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD, streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring. And full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.